there is no um is nothing new the whole thing's about getting where you're supposed to go and play and uh the the time is trying to get where you're going can be as much fun as uh as being on stage it's a great thing honestly left my own devices i just stare at the wall so it's great to be out and doing things. <laughs> I don't think that's true, though. I saw the documentary, John Waite, The Hard Way. By the way, congratulations. It's just wonderful. I have to say that when I first saw that it was directed by Mike Nichols, I got really confused because I know he's dead. But this is a different Mike Nichols. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good point. I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw it. Directed by Mike Nichols. Oh, my gosh. This is going to be a very serious Mike, film. Mike Nichols. But yeah, I you know I had nothing to do with it other than being interviewed i refuse to have any input on the edit or watch it i just it was, it was a stipulation of me doing it i didn't want it to be a puff piece that was uh there to make me look good if they wanted to film me they could come into my life they had four days and um nothing was off the table and i tried to be as honest as possible but i didn't want to know anything about how it looked that graph. is so and and at what period how long ago did you film it your interview part um a year maybe maybe mm -hmm. before. it was smack dab in the middle of the pandemic which right. killed everything it was like we were in lockdown so everything was darker you know i mean just seeing someone to talk to was a relief so mm -hmm. and the guy had, had, who did the interviews uh I've known it for like 30 years. So I think I opened up quite a lot more than I would have done normally. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it was a pandemic and there was, uh, you know, it, it was darker, a darker time. There's Absolutely. there's a shot in the, and there's a shot in the movie where I, I'm sort of staring off Palisades Park into the sea and there's nobody there. You know, it's just, it's like after the bomb drops. Yeah. It's like, you know, um on the beach it's really it's uh it's so strange but it did color the documentary it did it had big effects on it yes i think it did and i think it captures a point in time that an unusual point in time in that the entire world was going through the same thing I, there aren't too many things we can say that about yeah it was like a a, a unity that we didn't want Mm, that's a yeah. great way of putting it. Yeah. And so do you feel, so you feel, I don't feel free yet completely. I'm doing a lot more than I did, but yeah. do you feel free now? Well, I got sick um, mm. when I flew back from Holland. We, I flew back from England, actually. I went from Holland on tour mm -hmm. to England to see my mom. And then flew to New York and then to Boston to play the State Fair. And I think I got sick on the plane or... Or in Boston, but I've been sick for like six weeks. Oh, and I'm just over it. And uh, so I don't think it's time to uh, be, I mean, it's made a big comeback in Europe, in in Britain. It's it, There's a new version of it that's really kind of dangerous. I, I don't think we're done with it. It's oh, stop. You know, I'm finally going, I'm going to London <laughs> and, and Paris for the first time in April, Stephanie and I are going. Oh. And so we're going to be picking you your brain like crazy. But I, you know, I've been terrified. I haven't been on a plane yet. And now there's a new one in London. Don't tell me. This. No, it's, it's, it's okay. Just wear a mask. Yeah, Just I do. Mask, fly, get a decent mask. And, you know, 
the only I think the chances of getting it are, are, are a lot more probable if you're on an aeroplane and if you're on for an extended amount of time. But I think walking around, shaking hands, being around people, if you're vaccinated, I think it's it's kind of um I think it's gonna be fine. Well, do you think do you think you got sick? Flying, or do you think you got sick doing meet and greets and being close to people? No idea. But we, do, we, you know, it's it's an occupational hazard with me. Right. You meet everybody, and you're sort of like in the thick of the crowd, and you are, you're on, you're traveling, you know. So you're up against it. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fully vaccinated. So I think maybe what I got was maybe that other thing that's going around. And so, is it? It's an occupational hazard when you're a singer to to have a respiratory thing. So has that been a real struggle for you? In Cincinnati, um, uh, it was a wonderful gig in this uh, tremendous building. It was was like something out of Abraham Lincoln. Um, And my voice was kind of like it was half there, then it wasn't really, then it was almost all there. And that's the first time that's happened to me I don't know, 20 years. And it was weird. And I realized halfway through that the audience was kind of willing me on that as long as you're trying as hard as you can, the audience will love you. If you're walking around going like, I can't do this. Um, yeah, yeah, is that isn't what you're there for. But I think as long as it's a passionate performance, you know, that that I just went for it. I almost got through a whole lot of love. You know, I mean, it's like... <laughs> You know, um, I heard you do that. I saw a video. It's fabulous. Yeah. You see, yeah, it's easy to sing. It's just the travel. It's uh, the symptoms. It can knock you out. But uh, so tell us about this live album. What's the. um, Do you have a theme? Do you have a. a, Do you have a set list or are you just going for it? (laughs) No, we're going for it. We have like uh, about 25 songs we can pick from. And um, we just got back from Holland and we recorded like four gigs there. We had uh, Renus Gerritsen from Golden Earring get up and jam with us. So, you know, there's a lot of things that are worth keeping and the audiences were a big audience and we did really well. It was a a big turnout. Um, So there's that, those tapes being mixed at the moment to see what we've got. And we've been recording odd shows and I, with the Christmas holidays coming up, I'll have time to look at it and uh, see what we've got. And so you are, is this what you do normally? Like you're in the moment, you have a set, you have, okay, there are 25 songs we can choose from. I'm in the mood to do this now. And you tell, yes, and you. Oh yeah. I mean, there's some, uh, uh, there's like six songs you have to play, no matter what. You know, there's the baby stuff, and um, uh, there's obviously some of the the big singles. But um, there's more to the set than that. If you take people on a trip, they go with you. Mm-hmm. We start off unplugged. Me and Mark go out with two acoustics and play a couple of songs, and then the band comes out, and we pick up that song halfway through as a full band, and you sort of take the audience into this trip. Uh, to come out and just play the hits and sort of say like, hey, see, you buy a T-shirt. doesn't really interest me. I, I like the, the thing about um, challenging the audience. I mean, no matter where we're playing, in the middle of the set, we stop. And I do Bluebird Cafe with Mark Unplugged. Mm-hmm. 
and you could hear a pin drop, you know? Aww. Yeah. But I mean, it's a lovely song and I want to entertain people as well. If, if you listen to something at, at number eight on the volume all the way through the set, it's you end up thinking about like, you know, should you get a beer or a cup of coffee? Should you <laughs> have a hamburger? You know, uh, keep people on their toes to get more out of the set. And um, we have such a lot of great songs. But I throw in a couple of the obscure things for myself. I love them, you know. Do you, John, do you talk to the audience when you're doing a show? Yeah, I do. And I they love ask, that so much. I, you know, that we're playing a, um, in New York City about a month ago. And we had a sold out show and it was just, it was storming outside. It was torrential rain and it was packed, which is very unusual when it rains in New York. People stay right. in. And this guy, I'm playing this song and just warming up saying hi. This guy shouts, I saw you play at Siberia, which is in the subway. It was a small bar in the subway. Mm -hmm. And I took my band and played in the subway. And, uh, I ended up having a conversation on the mic with this guy about four seats back. And it was really engaging. And, the, and the, there was people chipping in. Now, you know, you can overdo that because people have come to see you play. Right. But the conversation is so, it's, it's, it's tailored. It's not tailored, but it's shot through the songs. I mean, a song like Downtown, mm -hmm. which is written about New York City, mm -hmm. that would have a, an aspect of playing in Siberia and that New York that was there. And Anthony Bourdain went into Siberia because it was such a, a dive bar, mm -hmm. but it, you know, it, was, it was a bohemian kind of hangout. But it, it all sort of coalesced, all these opinions and bits of information become part of the performance of downtown. So you couldn't, it would, it's better to have that sporadic thing with the audience where you, you answer a question. And then the whole audience goes with you. Is there a point in the show? It, I don't get that this is going to be true, but is there a point in the show where you always talk to the audience? Like you're going to, yeah, you don't seem to. I never know what's type. coming next. Mm -hmm. I haven't got any set thing I say to the audience. Uh, I explain Bluebird Cafe, the story behind it, because the, the song works better. Mm -hmm. But the story is slightly different every night. And I leave bits out and I put bits in. I don't have a script. And I think if you don't have a script, you're going to have something that's real happening with the audience. Absolutely. If it's a dialogue that you've rehearsed, um, it's just, it. what's the point? You might as well just play the song. But uh, I like that thing where it's just hanging by a thread. It does that challenge with the audience where they can go with you or they can get pissed off. I don't I, I really, <laughs> I don't know. You know I, remember once, I remember once being on stage to explain <laughs> The song was somebody shouted something like, shut up and sing. And like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you walk in a tightrope. <laughs> That's hysterical. I, I'm sure you remember back in the village, back in the day when, when folk singers would play along Bleecker Street and there was the story behind pretty much every song and that's kind of the way the set was constructed and it's so wonderful well you you brought up a couple of times bluebird cafe and telling the story i would be remiss if i didn't ask you to tell us a version of that story right now how did that song come to be well it's a long time ago but i was in nashville and i'd gone down there to write some songs i'd written six songs in six days and this guy called danny lowry had driven 200 miles 
to work with me. And I was tapped. And he had this, this line, young hearts can fly restless and wild. It was over a G code, I think, or a C. And um, I tried a couple of things. We got together in the studio, he's a great guy. We got on like a house fire, but I had nothing. I just, I was tapped and we went down to the Crab Shack, which is a, it's not there anymore. Mm. But you could sit outside, it was 12 o'clock, we had a beer. You know, we kind of gave up actually. <laughs> and uh, this beautiful girl came out of nowhere, this Iranian girl, she's about 17, 18. And she was gonna go and sing with a boyfriend at the Essa clubs that night. That's no longer there either. But as I was watching her, I kind of wondered what her backstory was, you know, how she got to Nashville. How, how, where did she come from? Did she travel to Nashville? Was she born there? And uh, if you were traveling to Nashville from Canada or Cleveland or New York City, where would you go when you got there? What's it like for a girl that age, you know? And I thought about the Bluebird Cafe because they have an open mic night. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I was that person, I would head for the Bluebird and uh, hope that I got discovered. So I put the two things together. I tried to write her backstory. You know, I, I write, this. She says she's 21, but she's just 17. Her apron says Mary, but her real name is Jean. <laughs> Working cleaning tables off at the local Dairy Queen, but she's the real thing. And then his line, young hearts can fly restless and wild. Then I put in, we shall get out of this town someday. She's got the will, she'll find her way to the stage of the Bluebird Cafe. Yeah. Did that come out? Did that come e did that come easy to you? Yeah. It was a piece of cake. It took maybe an hour and a half. Wow. Once you know what you're writing for or what you're looking for it's it's like you've got a flashlight and you you flash it onto this and it's there in a dark room you don't see anything else but what you're going for and if you're writing sort of like without a a point uh you could be there for a week you know but it's it's the inspiration of, of not it's the unexpected do you ever do you ever labor do, or, or, or is any of your work laborious? I mean, do you ever sit down with a song and you start with a great lyric and then you don't know where to take it or a piece of music? Does that happen? It doesn't sound like it does to you. No, it doesn't. It does in bands. It did in bad English, you know, with mm. stuff. And you'd have this this idea of where it should go. Then somebody would play the wrong chord or start trying to take over and it would just, just go no. <laughs> but that's that's like being in a band. You have to sort of like go with that stuff in a band, but uh, you don't when you're solo. And the trade to be in a band is that I suppose you you have help to write, but the, the work isn't going to be as focused. It's going to be something else. I assume you prefer oh, doing yeah. your own thing. Yeah, I would never I would never do it again. It's just ridiculous, you know. Tell tell us this tell us the story about uh, touring with Ringo and his All Star Jam because that's something that was a decision you made that I think was a mixed blessing for you. Yeah, it was kind of strange because you know you're in a band full of people that are sort of just as excited as you are to be there, and there's a feel of of panic. You know, everybody's trying to sort of <laughs> you know I'm with you, Ringo, and I'm, I'm from the kind of I'm from the Northwest, so I would probably say something dry, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> would get it 
And sometimes he didn't, you know, it's like <laughs> he is Ringo. And, uh, but I, you know, yeah, it was uh, very competitive, you know, it's like- And people, there were a lot of egos. There's a lot oh, of egos yeah. going on. It was ridiculous, you know, mm. you just, I, I went to play bass. I didn't really want to sing. And I had to be kind of like, you know, get up and sing a couple of songs and sing harmony. But there's enough going on on that stage to, to keep you occupied for a, a long time. There's a lot of different uh, people coming to the table with their own songs mm -hmm. from entirely different styles. And right. then they those stuff. And, you know, that's a big gig. I mean, maybe that kind of thing would work better with a core band playing with Ringo and just singers getting up and singing a couple of songs mm. and Ringo doing his thing. But to do both, to play an instrument and then play other people's songs and then sing harmony and then, you know, be in this crowd of people that are all going nuts because we're around Ringo, it's, it's a tough thing. So what was it like though, John, to have Ringo playing on Missing You? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, no. <laughs> Absolutely insane. There's, there's just an insane thing. I mean, it's like full circle, you know, when I was about nine, mm -hmm. there's Ringo in the Beatles and he's like, he was the most kind of lovable Beatle because he was like mm -hmm. the rest of us, you know, he was on the drums and he was like funny and stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so you, I always, and being a bass player, you know, you, the first thing you look at when you look at a band is the drummer. Absolutely. So it was, it was, a, it were big shoes. You know, I never forgot that no matter how good it got, uh, he played with Paul McCartney. And there's somebody that's like, sting tenfold you know it's like, <laughs> like you know and so there was that there was that thing of always trying to be as good as you could be every single moment to 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 bring it for Ringo you know so there was a story when you were on that tour about walking outside of Radio City Music Hall and running into somebody um I've completely forgotten that story well there was a beetle on the street oh, <laughs> Yeah, Paul, it's the day of Radio City, we'd done the sound check and I was just wandering around, you know, between the avenues, just like, just trying to uh, get, keep my head clear. You know, Radio City, it's a big deal. And walking towards me was, uh, was Paul and his ex-wife. And, you know, I mean, I'm already dealing with working with Ringo and it's kind of, I'm trying to just, you know, this is very serious, John, you know, stay focused. And um, as we got closer, he looked at me right in the eyes and raised his eyebrow, like, you know, hey, John. And I just went like, you know, hey, how you doing? I kept walking. I could not deal with two Beatles in one day. I couldn't do it. I honestly couldn't do it. And I'm a huge fan of Paul's and he's a tremendous guy and all that. But um, I don't, I think he got it, you know, it's. Uh, I really hope that one day you have the opportunity to tell, to speak to him about that oh, in person. I'm sure he, I'm sure he knew. Yeah, it's it's a high pressure thing, man. If I sign up for something, I give it a hundred percent, and I don't really sign up for anything. Ringo was the exception. I just I thought, well, you know, he was. So looking back, even though there were challenges to it, are you still glad that you did it? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, um, I've done a lot of things in my life that just uh, I came out of nowhere that I was on a course to do. You know. Mm -hmm. So they show up at different times. You meet somebody that you've really admired or you meet somebody that's going to change your life at that moment. 
And all this stuff seems preordained, whether it is or not. I was not. just going to ask you that, because I'm a fatalist. Do you believe Do you believe that things happen that are supposed to yeah, happen? Yeah, I honestly do. And I don't know why, because everything is so chaotic. Mm-hmm. But the stuff that arrives when you're in the deepest need, uh, or when you need someone to put their hand on your shoulder and tell you it's okay, it, it does, it happens. And... I think sometimes people of like mind, uh, you connect through the atmosphere or whatever, and you're kind of in orbit around the energy and you just meet. I think it's uh, it's almost like a, a planned thing. It's like... Uh, it's like I sitting- believe that. I think that no matter what choice I make, if I was meant to meet John Waite, and I was meant to have this um, this Zoom relationship with you, John. And yeah. we were meant to have conversations. Yeah, I, I, I really believe that. I mean, I, I, I met people along the way that I thought I would never meet. And, and it was good. You know? you know, it was so interesting because the way I found you was Sandy Gennaro, our mutual friend, had had posted something about you on LinkedIn. And I was like, wait, wait. And then I reached out to you and then that happened. And and um, and then it turns out we have so many mutual friends, Kenny Aronson and so many other yeah. people from back yeah. in the day in New York. But yes, I do believe things are meant to be. Uh, speaking of, before we get off the Ringo and Paul thing, the last time we, we spoke was in, in March and you hadn't yet seen Get Back. Have you watched it since? No, not yet. Oh, John. I know. I know. As a Beatle fan, it's just something that I think it was so eye-opening and mind-blowing for me. My my perceptions of each of them changed drastically. Except for Ringo. He was the only one I got right before I saw it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's really something. I mean, I I know it's extremely intimate, and I know it's the reverse side of the original movie. It's very raw. It's very raw. It's very real. It is uncensored and a little scary sometimes to see how intense their energy was. And, you know, I mean, back to Ringo, I mean, he walks, I mean, apparently the story is, I mean, that footage where Paul's playing the bass and he's he's writing get back in front of George and Ringo and they just, no, like, you know, Ringo's going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they'd sort of like just sit in there and Paul's hammering out this song. And the story is that when they went to cut it, Ringo just went behind the kit and went like, played it all on the snare, you know, you know, just like well, that. You, you can watch that happen in, in this documentary. But, you actually watch that song get written. Yeah, but that's, yeah. My, that's my point. I mean, something like that, talking about preordained stuff. Mm-hmm. I was just saying to the other day when the when they were looking at slides for the uh, Rubber Soul album, mm-hmm. they had a projector on the photograph uh, of the photograph that, I don't know, what it, a, a card. They had a mm-hmm. white and a small projector with slides. And the, the, the uh, album cover is like convex, I think it is, because the card fell backwards. Ah. And, and, it, and it, it made all their faces look slightly elongated. Wow. I mean, stuff like that. It's a pass. It's a joke in some circles of big Beatle fans that, you know, somebody walks in the door and, and stubs their toe and shouts something. They write a song about it. And it's just like everything was just like that. Uh, it, the energy was 
was such that those four individuals, I mean, how could you get four individuals like that in the same city, like Liverpool, and they all play a role. The principals obviously being kind of John and Paul, but right behind them, there's George, who's this brilliant guy who turns the world on to Indian music and the whole thing, you know, Krishna consciousness. And then you got Ringo, that's kind of like the guy that's the glue. There's only so many people in the world that can play great drums, but you listen to everything he ever played. And it's, there's nobody could have done that job, but Ringo is that good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um- I totally just lost the question I was going to from here, but, oh, I know what I was going to say to you. Do, do you remember when, well, we were kids, that whole thing about Paul is dead and there was that whole rumor. That, do you remember that all of that? Well, I, it was an American thing. Oh, it was American. It was very much that thing that like, you know, that, that culture that was reading Rolling Stone and, mm-hmm. and Cree Magazine and Circus. And it was, I think that was much more of an American thing. The British wouldn't have gone for that. <laughs> I still, right. every once in a while, look at him and hmm, wonder. No. <laughs> How could you be that good, you know? Well, that's true. That, 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 could, never be dupl- that could never be duplicated, I'm sure. So, so John, t- let's talk about the documentary, John Wait the Hard Way. Yeah. What, did somebody come to you? Did you go to <clears> somebody? <throat> what, what's the birth of this? Well, I, I had a friend of mine, Scott Wright, Mm-hmm. used to work at Epic Records. We became good friends. And I even went to his wedding in New Orleans. And uh, we stayed in touch over the years at dinner. And there was a Black Lives Matter protest in Portland that turned into a riot. And they started to burn Portland down. And he lived in Portland. And I got out of bed one morning. I thought, I wonder if Scott's okay. And I called him up and said, how are you doing? You, you know, he has a, a winery and stuff, you know. And he said, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. We started talking about the road and what I was doing and touring and recording. And he said, man, you've had a fascinating life and it's hard to believe you're still, you know, swinging. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, what else am I going to do? And he said, you, this would make a fabulous film, you know. And he said, well, you know, that's very nice, you know, that's very nice. Um, Hope you will give my best to Martha and I'll see you soon. And and he called back about six weeks later, a month, six and he had the backing. He had the oh the backing. Yeah, he had the money, and it's a lot of money. And um I just sort of I had to really think about it. But I I said I would do it if um if I stayed away from it. He could come in and interview me and film me, and I would be as honest as I could be but I wanted nothing whatsoever to do with the edit or how it looked, the graphics. Uh, this is so unusual, John, because first of all, you're a visual artist, you, you're a fine artist. So I'm shocked that and, and impressed that you were able to step away from the, well, that well, side I mean, of it. Yeah, but you get, these, you get these documentaries like, and they're all an homage to, to the artist. It's like, you know, they're a really great person and and maybe the careers aren't doing so well right now, but wait for this new record. And, you know, meanwhile, they're doing some charity event and it's like, and it's <laughs> it's nothing more than a promotional tool. Mm-hmm. And sat there during the editing and they're calling the shots of what comes out finally. And I thought that would be incredibly boring, you know, where it's all positive 
I dropped the F-bomb just about every 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, My kind of guy. Yeah, no, it's like, yeah, and, uh, and I, I get very passionate about stuff. I, I actually get emotional at one point. I was it. that I was going to say, there's that beautiful moment where, oh, you, know, where I mean, you had that moment. And I love the fact, I guess it was Scott on the other side of the of the interview yeah. there who just kind of encouraged you to just go and have that moment I mean, and they I didn't thought, cut it and they didn't clean it up and that was the point I mean normally I would say hey come on we don't need to put that in that's 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 extremely personal but you know I'm, I'm a fan of films and uh, directors and I don't want to sound smart and start dropping names like Truffaut and all that stuff and <laughs> Don't sound smart. No, 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 no. I'm, I, I swear to God. But I, I do know as an artist that if you tamper with something, it's not going to have any strength at all. Mm -hmm. You can't have too many cooks and you certainly can't have the ego of the person who's the subject involved in the edit. That's insanity. So a condition of me doing this is that I'd have nothing to do whatsoever. They could come in and film me. They could, uh, they set up a, a scene in, in a garden. I was going to say, it looked like it all happened in one sitting, but it didn't. Oh, no, no, okay. no, no. It was four days, spread mm -hmm. out over a couple of weeks, months. Oh. Yeah. And, you know, coming to my condo, my girlfriend and mm -hmm. the whole thing, and, and, you know, I look like shit, especially when it comes to the, the condo, because, I mean, I hadn't been out for like six weeks or six months or whatever, you know, it was like, that's the COVID thing. And so that was really impressive. Sorry for interrupting you, but that was really impressive to me, John, because you are a well-dressed man, as a certain group once said, and you are, you are, you're just, oh, you've all through the years, you've had fabulous hair, you've had great clothes, you're, you're oh. incredibly put together, you have your earring that is iconic, and you, you just, you, you are a, a dead, you are a, a man of fashion, and you so. You almost had a dedicated follower. I almost did. Almost did yes, I, I, I almost did a Kingslayer, but, but the thing is that you're not a follower of fashion, you're a maker of fashion, which is why I caught myself, and I was so impressed that you did not control that in this film. I mean, you had no ego there. You had no, they didn't have to properly light you so that you had no lines on your face. You oh, didn't no. wear the perfect outfit. Your hair oh. wasn't perfectly quaffed. Yeah. You were, you were just a regular person. So I, my hat's off to you because that's very brave in this crazy world we live in. Well, if, uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, I mean, at some point they asked about sex and drugs and all that. And I just, here it goes. And I, I put it on the table. Mm -hmm. They chose not to use that. And that was- I was going to say, I don't remember hearing anything about your sex life or your drug using in that film. Know, but it's, it's, you know, but, uh, as John Lennon said, uh, when they asked him all this stuff about the Beatles mm -hmm. and, you know, um, satiricum, he said, you know, why would I bring that up and hurt Yoko? Mm. And I thought that was such a, that's typical John Lennon, very sensitive guy. But I had nothing to do with that decision. I gave him a couple of funny asides. Did you? 
Yeah, I really did. I gave a couple of things, naming nobody that, yes, that happened. And of course, I and they chose not to use it. But OK, well, wait a minute. Come on, John. For the no. sake of for the no. sake of conversation, you know, you didn't use them. They're not in the film. No one's going to hear it there. Give us a give us something. Tell us a story that's not in the film. Oh, that's not in the film. Yeah. Tell, okay. tell us, tell us a sex drug is in rock and roll. No, no, no. <laughs> Why would I do it now and not in the documentary? And the, it's like, you know, people forget in the 60s and 70s. I mean, it was part of the culture. Everybody was walking around with drugs on them. And it wasn't like uh, a dark, it was like, it was like a, a free society of, of a lot of different things going on at once. And we were all part of it. Mm -hmm. And then as people clean up their acts and it became a bit more like, well, you can't do that it became more sort of criminalized and then it became like, ooh. And so, you know, but I mean, I have no excuse for anything I've ever done. I did it with all my heart and I had a great time. I never set off to hurt anybody. I'm not evil, I, you know, but I've had- well, I don't want you to tell us a story that would hurt anybody, but come on, there has to be, there has to be a story of some drug debauchery before a show or after a show or with somebody wonderful. I just, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that's cool. I don't, I, <laughs> I mean, I gave, I tell you what, I gave the, the director, Scott, and, and everybody the opportunity. I, mm -hmm. I threw out a couple of things about, yeah, I did that. And I was there when that happened. And that was all. And then I thought, well, what, what's that? There's a, there's a line you don't really cross. There's a line. You know something, John? I don't agree. I, I, I don't agree with that because I believe, and, and from what you said in the documentary, when you didn't know they were going to make that choice, you said, I'm going to, I'm going to be completely authentic. I'm going to tell the honest truth. I'm going to do all this is what you see is what you get. And I don't believe there's ever a time other than if it's going to hurt somebody where censorship serves anything, because your experience is probably my experience and maybe somebody else's experience or maybe completely different, but, but it, it unites us. Our experiences unite us and spark memories in each of us that um so i i i don't believe in censorship of any kind unless well, it's going to hurt somebody but i think this that you can edit yourself as you're ex describing Why? Yourself. because I, I remember reading in rolling stone there was an actress that was uh a famous actress a star faded fairly fast mm -hmm. she was doing an interview and she was actually talking she was spilling all this stuff out and it was like did I really want to know that? And does well, she really honestly want other people to know that? Or are you looking for credibility in tearing away the facade of your persona to show something that's, that's very hard to digest and probably not that cool just because you want the reputation of being honest? To share. Well, if, if you're doing it just to have the reputation of being honest, no, I don't think there's valid. I don't think there's There's a fine line in there where I think it, it, it behooves everyone to, to just rein the horses in just before it goes over the cliff. And if you want to, I mean, Keith Richards on his deathbed, if he wants to like really do an expose, I could see <laughs> that. I could see that working. But, you know, you have to consider people have trusted you. You know, when you've slept with somebody, you've really had that's to, that's different, John. I, I'm not talking about throwing anybody under the bus, and I'm not talking about um, hurting anyone. I, I was talking more about a, a, a fun drug story than anything. And you know, there, there's uh, 
Um, Neil, Neil Gaiman, I think it was, who said that, you know, make good art. And he says that if we're not willing to jump off the cliff and say it. the uncomfortable and do that, you know, that's really what art is when we, when yes, there are no reins. Put yourself as, as the, the lone uh, icon on, on the page of the subject and then mm -hmm. talk about that relentlessly. Uh, I'm not sure if that's art or just self-promotion. Mm -hmm. No, you could, you could like, like you were talking about that painting before where, where I've got a ventriloquist with a small uh, model ventriloquist dummy of Christ. And if you look at the, and it's got a wire halo at the top, and then this, and it's all about religion. And if you look at the painting closely enough, I love that painting, by the way. Yeah, somebody bought that. Oh uh, yeah, a lot of money. And um, but if you look at the ventriloquist, mm -hmm. he has also got like some wood in his neck, and he's a he's a dummy too. Uh -huh. So you've got this like absurdist thing. You've got this like very very ironic thing about like religion. And as all being basic puppets, and but you have to look at the painting to to you have to study the painting to get the message. I don't want to come out like it happens a lot now with these young hot stars. They're all talking. Some I read something the other day about there's like five really beautiful women. I mean, really beautiful young women, mm -hmm. and they were answering questions on their famous uh, on their favorite sexual position, you know, and it was like. Are you kidding? You know, I mean, you, you you go, you you, I mean, something that's that between you and one other person, and you're trading that to get headline, something that's that is not at all what I was talking well, no, about. But what I'm saying it's that it's that there's there's some things that you just if you lose those, you lose yourself. Well, I agree with that completely. I wasn't talking about anything like that. I just thought maybe there might be a fun story about getting high before a show and fucking up no. on stage or I don't know, whatever. Something that happened in the course <laughs> I mean, of your I mean, journey. Those drug days came and went sort of, I mean, it's, it's been decades, you know, it's, it's thank God. I mean, how we all survive that stuff is some people are still doing it. Some people are still doing it. And by the way, it just dawned on me at this very moment that you're in Atlanta. I know. You are in the most glorious place in America this morning. And I'm sure you know why. Um, and I hope that it's going to be very celebratory at your show tonight because we had a huge victory. Oh, um, really? I didn't know that. Okay. Warnick won. Uh, democracy reigns this morning. Oh, that's cool. Yes, this was a big runoff election in Georgia last night, and it was uh, a yeah. very, very close. Um, Walker was ahead only an hour before the final numbers were counted, and it was very scary. You know, but Warnock did win. You know, this, this, we, we were talking about it last night, me and Tim, when he picked me up at the airport, and mm -hmm. me and Alan were just at breakfast with Tim, and we, every African American person, I've met in Atlanta mm -hmm. has been so open and equal and polite and welcoming. And it's, it's like a different world down here. There's, there's some real intelligence and there's a real energy that I think is positive. And um, every time I've come here, I've felt the same way. So I think, um, 
you are literally going to be doing your live al album in one of the most glorious days in George's history. Truly, I can't tell you how big as an American, and you are, you are for all intents and purposes, I can't tell you how huge what happened last night is That's to great. America. So That's this is a momentous day. And also, I don't know if you know, because you were traveling yesterday, but the Trump organization, I hate saying that name, but they were convicted of uh, on all counts of, of tax evasion and fraud. That happened yesterday, too. I saw that. So I, I don't know what's going to happen with that. You know, I, I, I just know. I know he probably will be Teflon on that too because it's not yeah. personal. But, but yes. But anyway, Georgia is a everyone in America. Well, not everyone, but many people in America are celebrating and um, very grateful to Georgia this morning. Well, like I said, it's got an energy and a and a, a spiritual kind of. There's something on here that I haven't felt on the road this year. It's just been like oh. You know, it's all right. You know, I like it here. So, okay, so you're you're doing this live album now, yeah. and you're still doing some art. You just sold this. How recently had you done that that piece of art? I had that going on about two years ago, but I um, I only put it up for sale about uh, six months ago. But it was, uh, you know, I think it was twenty five hundred dollars or something. I got, you know, I mean. It's quite a big piece. It's beautiful. I, I, well, it's beautiful. It, it's it's powerful. You know, I look at it. I, you know, I can always do better. But um, I'm I you know I'm just trying. You know, I did this interview with People Magazine uh, this week, and at, at the end of it, I talk about when I quit singing. But I I really will go back to painting. I will. I probably will never pick up a guitar again. And uh, wait, wait, wait. What is this? Why is this? What what? Well, you can't keep doing it. You can't keep getting on a plane. You can't keep... Um, what I said in People was that all the songs are in the same key as they were when they were written, mm -hmm. right? And I'm not going to drop the keys because the song sounds sonically like it does because it's in A or G or whatever. Right. I'm not going to drop it down like to from a B to a B flat. So when that happens, I think that's the tap on the shoulder. You know, I think after that, um, you know, it's, uh, it's like Bill Nighy in, um, <laughs> in, uh, still crazy. Is it still crazy? Uh, and, uh, Love Lil him. Yeah, yeah, he's great. But I mean, there's a point where you're like, no, no, I think you're talking, I think you're talking about in Love Actually when he keeps singing, love is all around us. And he's singing that song over and over. Is that the, the one you're talking about? Yeah, but he did one before about, about a oh. rock band they get back together. It was fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. A little crazy, I think. Uh, but that's 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 the same character, really. It's like this aging rock star. And he's, he's like, but Love Actually is, is just, I mean, that. I he's mean, he, so brilliant. <laughs> he's really great, you know. And I, he's, you know, well, I mean, I'm going that way. So, I mean, I don't want to be hanging around uh when people are just killing it, you know, I don't want to be an antique. But then I, I heard in the documentary, I heard your Joni say that the road is everything to you. And I, and I believe you say in the documentary as well, that that's really where you live. That's where, that's yeah, but, where you, you know, somebody, uh, I said this the other day, uh, there's a um, Steve Earle line from 
the Fort Worth Blues, and it says, you used to say the highway was your home, but we both know that that ain't true. And the highway is a corridor between two places. It's nowhere. The only place you ever land is where you're going to play or a hotel. The rest of it, you're traveling. Your feet don't touch the ground. It's, it's something you can get caught up in because you're, you don't have to be responsible for daily stuff. You have people getting you from A to B, getting you a, a bowl of cornflakes or whatever. It's, it's like, I love being out there and I love meeting people. I like people and I love singing with my band. But there'll be a time when it's just like, you know, it was great. I think I'll just stay home today and, and paint or I'll go and look at the ocean or I'll write a book. I'll do something else with my life. I've been doing this for 50 years. Most people do it for like five. My entire life has been spent making music. And when the spotlight was on me, I kind of rose to the occasion, I had some massive records. And when the spotlight pulled back and it was in the dark, I still made records that I think are better. I've enjoyed everything about my life. It's been an absolutely fantastic. I see your dog in the back. Yes, that's Rufus. <laughs> Rufus. I actually put the dog to sleep. Yes. <laughs> He can't hear you. I've got you in oh, my okay. ears. Otherwise, he'd be. That's he'd it. Be, I just want to say that it's been such a wonderful life. I, I, you know, it doesn't always. I don't want to be in the spotlight right up to the. I want to disappear at some point. I do. You know, John, I, I, I love that you're saying this. And it's very timely because uh, someone in my life has a, a musician partner who went out on the road for the first time on tour and came back and had a really hard time transitioning back to real life. Yes. Have you found that to be true that when you're on the road and you don't have any responsibility and you, you everybody's taking care of everything and then you come home and you got to take out the garbage and you got to No, I like all that. I, I like I like going shopping with Joni or doing whatever it is. I like all the, the pedestrian stuff. I have friends all over Santa Monica and in England and New York and and uh I can take it or leave it. It's um, when I was in the babies, I remember coming home and I was almost plugged into the mains. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't watch TV. I was pacing around the room. Mm. That was the only time it's been like that. Mm. And the rest of the time I can come back, have dinner somewhere and, and just unwind. But uh, I, I can switch it off. Do you look forward to coming home? Like you're you're doing two shows and then you're coming home and you're going to be off for the rest of the year. Yeah. Are you anticipating that with joy? Is that something you're looking forward to? Yeah, I am. I might go to New York for a couple of days. I might even if the if the train strike ends and it doesn't get snowed in, I might go and visit my mum. Okay, uh, so I want to talk about your mom because the last time we chatted, ninety six is she ninety six? Ninety six. She been. Oh, she might be 97. Do you know, I've forgotten. It's the last week. I can't quite remember which is 96. But, you know, I might, I might do that. But um, the way things are going at the moment, everything has just sort of coalesced. All these different things have all come together. And suddenly, I'm almost out of my depth with interviews and and offers and with the documentary coming out i was going to say you i isn't it very busy ahead for you with with promoting the documentary 
Well, I'm not really promoting it. I'm just doing interviews when I'm asked to speak about what it's like to be interviewed. I refuse to do interviews to promote the documentary. You're amazing. That makes sense. I mean, yes. I, I told Scott Wright and all the people involved, it's, you do it, it's your work, it's not mine. I'm the subject, but so what? I just, you know, told you a few things and, and held it together. But I, I, I it's When just, was the first time you watched it? Uh, six months ago. They sent me a copy about eight months ago and I didn't watch it for like two months, three months. <laughs> I wouldn't watch it. I mean, I'm in it. I've, what I'm, what, what's going to be in it that I haven't seen? But I, I just couldn't bring myself to watch it. And I how think, do you feel about it now that you've seen, now that it's out, you've seen it? Well, how would you feel? I mean, it's like going from like, you know, being a young man, being a child, my parents, my brother Joe, all this stuff, my first wife, uh, the babies, the, the, the madness of that life. And then mm -hmm. being number one, quitting, coming back, doing bad English, number one, quitting, whatever it is. And then Temple Bar, which for me was the watershed of, of all my work. And you, I mean, how do you... I, I just, I'm, I'm astounded that somebody made the movie. And I know it's it's an interesting thing to some people. There's a lot that's left out. Um, but what do you say about it? I mean- Is it uncomfortable for you to watch yourself or are you okay? Are you, are you fine whole, with that? No, I've spent my whole life being interviewed and filmed and on stage. Mm -hmm. And I can, I can be dispassionate. I can let mm -hmm. step back and watch it and go like, mm -hmm. You know, it is what it is. But when somebody actually makes a movie about your life or the music business or the pandemic or my part of the music business through all the changes it's been through, where I am now, where I was then, I mean, that's, you know, that's your story. Mm -hmm. You would like, obviously, to have gone in there and said, yeah, but this was more important than this. Um, but it doesn't matter. I don't think... I have any opinion. Did you did you have those moments watching it where you said, "Oh, I wish that would have gotten in there"? Or, yeah, mm -hmm. of course, mm -hmm. but it would have been a different documentary, and right. it, would, it wouldn't have been as objective. You know, does this make sense? It does make sense. Yes, of course, it makes sense, and and everything happens exactly as it's supposed to, right? We're both fatalists. We believe that Absolutely. what came out was exactly what was meant to come out. Yeah. Yeah, and there'll be a consequence of that. I'll either have to write a book or I'll, or there'll be another one. It'll be part two. Well, or so let's talk about that book because we talked about it last time. And I was listening to it again this morning just to remind myself, and you were saying that you couldn't write the book because it would be like epic because there's so much to tell and there's too much to tell and all of that. But I want to encourage you again, you can write it all down. That doesn't mean you have to publish it all. You can edit it once you write it, but you just write it all and you put it all down and then you can be the arbiter of what's important and what gets in there and what you take out and how it reads. And But first of all, you're, you're such an, um, a passionate reader yourself yeah, that... But I mean, I mean, speaking of that, I mean, I'm a songwriter and mm -hmm. I can put like lines that are like, shouldn't necessarily be together. 
that somehow of an inner rhyme or something, and then I'm allowed to put a D minor chord behind it or a D major chord behind it. And that shares the entire thing. Mm -hmm. It's no longer just writing. And if you read like George Simenon is uh, the Maigret books, I mean, like everybody from, I mean, the, the most profound thinkers in Europe were, were reading his stories and thinking the most marked. And there's, and, and Hemingway, there's hardly any adjectives in it's just like, bang. Well, Stephen King says, don't use adjectives ever. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying? I mean, but there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's talent and then there's, there's, you're meant to be a writer. Mm -hmm. I, I've written a short story recently and I really think it's got something and it's a long story and it's kind of tragic, but it has a beautiful end and it's, and it's really chaotic. And it, I think it's good. And I I'd love to read it, Johnson. I would love for you to send well, it to Well, I'll tell you me. what, if I, if I edit it and to get it right, uh, I have a rough copy, I'll, I'll send you one. But uh, I, I think I could write short stories, but to take on a life story, like I got a really profound sense of music and rhythm mm -hmm. and uh, intelligence from Keith Richards' book. And even yes. more so, although I couldn't finish it once it got to Live Aid, mm -hmm. Bruce Springsteen, Mm -hmm. uh, really had an eloquence and a command of lyric and a, and a command of words. Mm -hmm. And uh, it took me with him on, uh, in his story. Some people really have it. And then there's the, uh, the, the, the ghost-written stuff that's absolute shit. You yeah, know? that's crap. And you can tell when it's not somebody's oh. true. But maybe that's your thing, John. Maybe because you have, you were saying last time that you have so many aspects to your life and there's so many, maybe it is a collection of short stories. Maybe you capture your childhood in a story, you know. That's, that's, that's very good. Now that's. You know, you've told me every time we've spoken that I have some good ideas. I'm telling you, John, oh, we're on to something. Well, you're a super smart person. See, I, no. didn't, I didn't come across that. I didn't think of it like that. Mm -hmm. And yet the short story I wrote was in five parts about a guy getting drunk his brother got kidnapped when he was a child and and is it fiction yeah mm -hmm. and, and this guy loses his mind in in at his job walks out of his job goes to a pub in soho gets absolutely smashed and it's all like taxis and hookers and soho he gets down to the the south coast gets mm -hmm. on a ferry he gets in a fist fight in a in a pub runs away gets on the ferry to dieppe and gets to Dieppe, gets off, smashed, crashes in a park, gets through customs, crashes out in, on a park bench, looking for his brother, who's been kidnapped when he was about six. And he goes up to this uh, food stand, it's like a gypsy caravan, and gets a Calvados to try and sober up. Sits down, these two Apaches, they call them in France, the street thugs, eye him up, and he gets into a knife fight under a street lamp with these Apaches and he's drunk already. He's, he's shark bait. And- uh, He's shark bait. And they kill him. And as he fades away, he meets his brother, who was seven when he was four, and they go home. But it's like, um, it's, it's, a, it's a very involved five piece movement. What was the impetus for this story? Do you know, do you remember? No, I was, I was just uh, emailing somebody that was, and I, I just sent him a story. And then I started writing chapters just to keep him amused. But it became, 
I could see it as a visual as I was writing it and I didn't have to stop. It wasn't like what rhymes with cat. It was like, it, I, I could do it. It was like singing. And but, that's the thing, John, when you sit down to write your story, it's going to be the same way. You're not going to have to rhyme with cat and you're not going to have to stop and think. It's going to flow from your pen, from your brain. Yes, but I think, pen. I think you describe Lancaster, my hometown. I mean, that would take some doing. For the, for the average mind to see where I was raised in a terrace cottage, looking into the countryside, and it falls away immediately into a valley with a road that goes up. I mean, and it's about a mile before it reached the top. And there's a park, a, a huge, gigantic Victorian park opposite the front door. And behind the park, there's a mental asylum. In the middle of the park, there's a, gazette, a, a folly that looks like the Taj Mahal or St. Paul's. It's this wonder world of childhood, of ruined stables, forests, fields. And then in the background, somewhere on a small record player, there's Elvis Presley. You know, there's, it's just so many weird, disparate things. John, All... you've described that to me twice now, and you have described it perfectly both times. I see the whole thing before me. I can feel it. I can taste it. I can smell it. That is what good writing, that is what great writing is. You just did it. And yeah, but, all you do is take that same thing and put it on the paper. But we have tone of voice and expression. Mm -hmm. To really do that with just words. I mean, how could you capture the magical, the childhood happening as that is your environment? Because it's the passion that comes out from here and here through here. You just did. I yes. just felt you. Well, because we're talking, but to write down on paper, I'm not sure. I like the idea of the thing with it, doing short stories and putting it all together. I get that, you know. And somebody just wrote they would love an animated animated storybooks. That's something else you could do. That would be phenomenal. You could animate your stories, which would be incredible. I could. I could, couldn't I? I could do like pages of, of drawings and I could maybe do that. I think and then it, Tony just said you could record it as an audiobook and let it flow. That's another thing you, you could do. See, that's very you see, that's great. That's uh, that's a great idea. I mean, I thought the other day, do you know, uh, it's like when Dylan uh, wrote his book, he wrote that in longhand and didn't stop. He just wrote the whole thing. It's like, a, but he kicks off one chapter and he's, I think he's on an aircraft carrier somewhere in the Pacific or, or wherever it is, meeting John Wayne. And meanwhile, back on the, you know, and you go suddenly go to this aircraft. I mean, I could understand jumping around inside the life. Mm -hmm. I could see that. But starting at, at A and trying to get to Z. No, do your short, do your short, do do the collection, make them animated, do the audiobook. I mean, there's lots of ways you could approach it here. And if you are seriously considering that time is coming sometime down the road that you're going to stop, you're going to get off the road. What a great project for you to have ahead of you. Yeah. I always see myself in some small kind of um like a vicarage, a stone house somewhere in, in, in the northwest of England and by some countryside, growing roses and, you know, the dog and a cat and hopefully someone to love, you know. And, um, but listening to Radio 4 and painting and writing whatever comes into my mind. But I always think it's going to be away from the crowd. 
do you, you know, would you like to go back to England? Is that is that you know when I go back, it's like it's it's unreal. The humor and uh, the people are such character and they're so funny. You forget you walk into a pub and say, Anne, how are you doing? And somebody will say something that's hysterically funny that is completely unrehearsed, you know. <laughs> Some of it's fairly edgy and nobody takes offense. And it's kind of like a, they swear at each other and the but the humor, you turn on the TV and it's just, it's just killer. You know, there's something going on in, in England and Britain. That How I, far is Lancaster from London? 222 miles. Maybe we'll have to take a day trip and I'll have to, while we're there, and I'll have to go see that. that Lancaster Castle. I mean, the, the Lancaster Castle station is on a direct route to Glasgow from Euston. So it's only like three hours. And it's a wonderful trip. You Sounds can actually get off the train, you can spend the day in Lancaster, you can just see all these things that I've seen in my life, then get back on the train and maybe go to Glasgow, City of Art now, or go wow. back to London and, and, and hit it and rock. But I think you're going to have a really, really wonderful time. I'm, I mean, I'm going to pick your brain before we go. Yes, for some wonderful things. Yeah. I'm excited. John, I'm, I want to honor the fact that you have a show today, and I promised Tim that I would only hold you for an hour, and I've I'm, I'm, we're just hitting that now and I want to respect it because I know you have a big night ahead of you. And I am so excited. I can't wait to hear about this show that you do tonight because I'm telling you, they're going to be celebrating in Atlanta tonight. This is, it, Georgians I, are getting I, I so much up. love. Yeah, no, I think it's, um, you know, like I said, I, I heard about the Trump thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear about the other thing. I mean, when you're traveling, you really are in a cocoon. Uh, yes. Time, but, but it, I, I, you know, this is this interview has probably been the most off the hook I've done. <laughs> We've really just rambled. We were talking about all sorts of different things, and I stopped thinking about how it would sound, and we we're just having a conversation, which that's, is that's what that, we do every time, John. That's how we and, talk. But I think today we certainly got off the track and like wandered around, and it was great. Uh, it's I, I didn't realize that we'd gone off on so many different tangents and that we'd, we'd hit so many different things, you know? Well, I enjoyed it immensely as I always do when I speak with you. Yeah, and I, I wish you a wonderful show tonight and tomorrow. I, I so look forward to the live album when it comes out. Mm -hmm. And I hope that when you're in town in your break, maybe we can uh, have that coffee, have you up to the house. That'd be wonderful. I'd like to hang out and... Um, continue the conversation you know you're always very interesting likewise john i just adore you thank you so much for taking the time to do this Wonderful. for everybody out there it's john wait the hard way it's fantastic i streamed it on amazon last night i think it's all of, also available on apple and um it's very worthy as are you thank you so much john bless you bye-bye bye-bye have a great show bye-bye be well